Hi, everyone. My name is Stephen Kilger. I'm the managing editor for Feeding Grain Magazine and the host of the Feeding Grain podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today as we dive deep into issues affecting the feed manufacturing, grain handling, and allied industries. Today, I'm speaking with Lanny Smith, global sales manager for Vicam Waters. We're talking about mycotoxins. My conversation with Lanny is actually going to be split into two parts. This part will go into the history of mycotoxin testing and why grain handlers and feed manufacturers should be testing mycotoxins at the facility. And the next part will go into mycotoxin regulations and testing technologies, just to, to keep these episodes a little bit shorter and hopefully a little bit more digestible. But before we start, if you're listening to this in a podcasting app, please rate us and subscribe. If you're listening online, sign up for the Feeding Grain newsletter and just watch to see the latest podcasts and stay up to date with all the latest news from around the industry. Now, on to the show. Hi, Lammy. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. I appreciate extending the offer to me to come in and talk about some highly talked about topics in the uh, grain industry. <laughs> I, I know. Uh, mycotoxins, it's always more to talk about with them. It's a constantly evolving science. Can you tell me a little bit about you and what you do with Vicam? Again, my name is Lanny Smith. Born and raised in central Iowa, so I was born in the grain belt, in the agriculture belt, and have a lot of background in agriculture. It kind of took me to where I'm at now with Vicam, selling mycotoxin test kits to the food and grain industries. Vicam has been around since about 1985. To give a little bit of insight on the company and mycotoxin testing. Prior to 85 at that point, and I can remember this in the grain industry and grain elevator right out of college, was we knew there was something in the grain and it was called aphitoxin. And it was basically fluorescence. It fluoresces, so they were using black lights to detect it. They didn't really know what they were seeing, but they knew there was something there. Vicam, the original owner, went to about five or six major PhDs in Cambridge from all the big colleges. And they kind of put their heads together and said, we got to find out what's going on out there. Because the original owner from Vicam also owned egg companies up through Maine, New Hampshire. So angling supplied eggs to the whole East Coast. And he could tell that something was going on. The hens were not eating. They weren't producing eggs like they should. So they finally figured out that there was this toxin or a mycotoxin. And that's how Vicam kind of got developed in our product. Easier ways to detect mycotoxins. And that was in 1985, and we've come so far since then. But that's Vicam. Vicam is, it was always in Watertown, Mass. They were purchased by Waters Technologies in 2006. So we're on part of the Waters Technologies company. Um, Waters is a big instrumentation manufacturer for laboratories. So like Agile and all their suppliers out there and their competitors. So we sell mycotoxin test kits immunofinity columns that are like a cleanup column that we can take a sample, grind it up, we flush it through there. We can extract the toxin and put it into a machine. It'll give us part per billion, part per million level. So we know what the contamination level is. And we can do it by lateral flow too. On strip. So the antibody is put onto a strip and we put the solution on it. And then it that strip is analyzed in the machine and quantitative number is developed there. So that's what Bicam does. And we do it worldwide. We have distributors all over the world. I have three major representatives, one in Latin America, one in Asia, and one in Europe that manage all these network of distributors selling our products. And my title is 
global sales manager. So I, I kind of manage all that. I also have my own territory here in the U.S. So I do sell direct too. What's your territory in the U.S.? Pretty much everywhere. I live in New Jersey now. I do the whole northern east coast part across the United States on the northern and through the Midwest, and then I have all the West Coast, too. We have three people that do all in North America that cover 50 states in Canada. So I also help cover Canada, too. So I, Well, you're, you're certainly busy. Just that small territory of most of the United States, right? <laughs> it does get pretty dicey when harvest comes, like what's coming now, and getting ready for harvest. And the third and fourth quarter is always our busiest time of the year, the second half. Well, that's a good warning to anyone listening to this is get your orders in now before things really get busy. <laughs> that's right. We're uh, probably coming up on about probably three, maybe four weeks, probably the end of September, 1st, October for corn harvest in the Midwest or all the way through the corn belt. Peanut industry is going to start harvesting peanuts probably in about two weeks. Cover California's tree nut industry will start almonds, pistachios, walnuts, hazelnuts, the, all up and down the West Coast will start harvest probably in about three to four weeks. So, well, you're in for a busy month. Thank you. So, thank you again so much for coming to talk to me. Yeah. Oh, no worries. I like talking about this. I like education as part of our job, too. It's just not selling. It's, it's, uh, there's always changes in the way we detect mycotoxins and, and they, how they grow, where they're at, uh, the predominance of each one. And, and that's kind of what we report, help our customers out and even prospects as far as looking at how they can do this detection. So. Fantastic. So mycotoxins are always kind of a hot topic issue. And it's quite crazy to believe that only 1985 really started to realize what we were dealing with. So what are some of the direct and indirect costs associated with mycotoxin contamination for grain elevators and feed producers? What can they potentially stand to lose economically along with the health risks and all that? Sure. I guess in the very beginning, uh, you know, talking to a customer, the prospect that wants to, they know that they need to detect this. They need to, through regulations, through the USDA, FDA saying you need to test. It's that cost, upfront cost of the instrumentation and then buying the kits. And it is an expense. It's not huge. But then on the other hand, you look at the expense if you don't test and they end up with a problem. They end up with an issue and they can't sell the grain. The grain has to be blended. It has to, something has to be done to get rid of those, the the heavy concentration of mycotoxins in that grain, whether it be wheat, corn, barley, pulse crops, which is your chickpeas and your lentils. And you have to know where you're at because you're responsible for that product. You're a part of that product. Even if you're a grain elevator and you're the first point of intersection with that with that grain, is you got to make sure it's safe because you're going to sell it to the next part of the chain where it's going to go to a Cargill ADM of the world processing where they're going to take that corn and make it into cornstarch, to corn gluten meal, to Wesson oil, oils, everything. Got to make sure there's not any toxins in there. They have to test again and on, so on down the line. So they look back at where it started and that's usually at the grain elevators or the feed mills that are buying that grain. So it's very important to start there because that cost is a cost of a recall. It's a cost of not being able to sell that grain at the highest quality, especially in the wheat industry where you get 
vomitoxin. And as you can, they use sorters to sort it out, they get the prime grain of wheat can be sold at a higher, higher level. And the, the part of the, the wheat that isn't the best is still sold, but it at a lot less price. So you're losing money there. So there's a lot of ways where these organizations would be elevator feed mills, food manufacturers can really lose money. So it's kind of that thing of, do I buy insurance or don't I? Do I take the risk? Um, and it, I always compare it to car insurance, you know, Hey, I've driven 30 years of my life, never had an accident, never had uh, even a broken windshield. Why am I paying all this money out every month for car insurance? I could have saved a lot of money, but it takes that one time that uh, you don't have that coverage. You don't have that data to back up when audits come out at some of these locations. And the FDA comes out and says through the FISMA Act of that you have to be held accountable for uh, the product that you're selling to the next level and they'll trace it all the way back and there's fines there's so there's lots of things i mean that's getting down to the harsh end of <laughs> mycotoxin contamination but but it's always lurking there it's like any given day the football game any given day that's how i risks is the upfront cost of it and but then how does that outweigh the cost of down the road when a, a recall or you get shut down because you're putting out bad product or, you know like a feed mill to cattle aren't uh, ray gains down that kind of thing so reputationally too i'd imagine like no one wants to be the elevator delivering like toxin contaminated grain no one's going to want to buy from you again right exactly especially a feed mill it gets out there that you had and cattle died or chickens died or the reproduction problems of mycotoxins and it's like oh don't buy from xyz feed mill because they've had some issues and and that part too gets into the education part. Sometimes people are easy to jump and then go, well, how come they didn't know that? Well, let's understand the animal first before, because that's another area of mycotoxins as far as the detection and actually finding it is very hard too. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, what are some of the like best technologies and practices that are available now to, to prevent, detect, manage mycotoxin contamination? Because even in my time in the industry, which is frighteningly about 11 years now, it's advanced so much from where it used to be it has it has tremendously and every day it didn't up until probably 10 years ago and the reason i used that date is a good 10 well, probably farther than that 12 13 years ago was when lateral flow strip came out and being able to detect on a everybody looks at it and says oh it's a pregnancy test well that's kind of what it looks like it's a cassette with a strip inside of it with the antibody sprayed on it that's come so far you know, like I mentioned earlier, the black light. It was to take a tub and put a black light bulb in there and cut some holes and run the grain underneath it. And aphitoxin that comes from aspergillus mold. And aspergillus mold fluoresces. It glows green. So you can see it. You can't see it by the naked eye. You put it underneath the black light. That's all we really had. Now, is that the actual mold or is that really the aphitoxin? And mycotoxins, all of them, aflatoxin, femonisin, vomitoxin, ochratoxin, Xarelinone and T2 are your major six ones, and then M1 that gets into milk from aphitoxin, is they all are derived by a mold. Now, the mold can make you sick, whatever. When it converts to the chemical, which is the toxin, which is the aphitoxin, the fumonisin, um, there's no getting rid of it. How do you kill a chemical? There are chemicals out there that are sprayed on cornfields called Afligard that kind of 
what it does is it's another bacteria that fights the space on the ear of corn up against the aspergillus so that it can't grow. So if it can't grow, then your possibilities of aphitoxin are very low. So that's kind of the prevention. There's not a lot. I mean, we're dealing with a natural phenomenon or a natural mold that grows everywhere. I always say if we could test a flower, you can probably find that it's got aphitoxin on it or it's got, it's got aspergillus mold on it. So the prevention is just scouting fields, knowing how the molds grow. You know, aphitoxin or aspergillus like heat. It likes a drought situation. That's why like right now in the Midwest this year, they're looking because of the high heat and lack of rain in areas, there could be some aphitoxin. All the toxins grow differently and come from different molds. So it's just a matter of scouting, knowing, you know, these grain elevators, knowing where they're buying their grain from. Is there an issue? And them having the detection instrumentation to detect and always have it there. So at the beginning year, you know, if you don't find anything, hey, we've got a mild year, then we're good. But there's really no way to get rid of it other than blending. Like in corn, wheat, you can blend it. So if you if you put a small concentration of aphitoxin corn kernels into a bigger bucket of clean, you're eventually gonna you're gonna blend it out so that when the final test is you're below that 20 part per billion regulation. So there's some areas there. The government kind of controls that. That's almost uh, what you would call legal. The individual state governments, agriculture part of the government's department will control that. So in years when it's really bad, they'll allow it just to keep the food chain going. But so it's just some little practices, you know. Hi, Stephen butting in just to let you know the rest of the conversation with Lanny will be concluded in the next Feeding Grain podcast. Make sure you tune in to learn more about mycotoxin regulations and emerging technologies. Can't wait to see you then.